0: Tonight, we're talking about um, objections. So we've been talking about for, what, five weeks now. just been working through the gospel. What is the gospel? What is repentance? And things like that. So now in the gospel conversation, we're going to start moving into um, objections that you might run into. So we'll talk about some of these objections a little bit. And if we have time at the end, maybe we can stop and just kind of maybe role play some objections and things like that. And if we still have some time left, maybe we can pray for our people on our list. Because I think that's the most exciting thing. Um, You know, I, I think if you're thinking about, you know, you are kind of your own ministry, if you think about it. What is your purpose? Like, remember back to the very first lesson, God has saved us to be worshipers, right? He's called us out of idolatry, called us to be worshipers. And he's so good that he uses us. And so you're sitting there and you're, as an act of worship, it overflows on to, to the people around you. But if you think about why do I Really, why do I share the gospel with people? And hopefully it's because you care about them, right? Because you love the Lord and you love people. And so hopefully that's kind of the motivation. And so you remember that our job is to take the gospel and to go out into the world and to be faithful with it. We're sharing the gospel, we're calling people to repent and to believe And we're not doing it with signs standing on the street corners, yelling and screaming angrily at people. But we're living life with them. We're loving them. We're trying to hold their hand and walk with them. And so that is a ministry. Like, it's a stewardship. The gospel is a stewardship. Why did God give me this stewardship? And we were talking this week. uh, My wife and I just reminiscing about, um, Chris Gertsen. Cause uh, let's see, I think she has, we just ordered her new book that's coming out and we were talking about, I think she has a birthday or something coming up. So we were talking about her and we just were thinking about and talking about just how useful she was the Lord, how productive she was for the Lord and how she was just such a great steward of her time and her talents for the Lord. And so, you know, you sit there and you think, somebody that is so gifted and so talented that it almost feels, it just almost feels wrong that she was taken from us so soon, right? Because she was so useful for the Lord. And that led to the conversation of, but here's the thing. God doesn't need any of us. But what a gift and what a privilege for us to get to carry that baton, to get to have this stewardship of His Word To get to have this ministry of sharing the gospel with people. What a great gift the Lord gives us to be stewards of his truth. So you have a ministry. You're out there, you're sharing the gospel, you're calling people to come to Christ. Next thing is, do you have a plan in place to follow up with people and to disciple them? So everybody's skills and talents are different, and everybody does different things. Um, But have a plan in place for some kind of a basic Bible study, like just an introduction to the faith and sitting down and meeting with them and following up with them. That was something that um, the person that shared the gospel with me did that was really, really impactful with me. It wasn't just go read Romans. It wasn't just here's the gospel, but they followed up with me and they took me out to lunch every Tuesday. And we went to Dylan Nature Center and we had, he had just a little booklet that had a short little chapter with a memory verse. So we would do the memory verse and then we would, in the little booklet, there was a little, uh, breaking down the memory verse step by step. What does it say? What does it mean? So it was things like uh, assurance of salvation, assurance of answered prayer, and assurance of victory over sin, things like that. Just the basic just basic assurances for a new believer. And I've recently pulled that back out. I've had that for over, I've had that for 22 years. No, nope. it is... Um, It's called Growing in Christ. I have copies of it and I'll share it with you. Um, But it's called Growing in Christ and it was put out by the Navigators. Mm -hmm. And so he would just take me out to lunch and we would memorize 1 John 5, 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. That verse is 22 years old in my head. That was the first verse I memorized as a new believer. And so, see how impactful that is? 22 years down the road, I have gray hair now. I'm a 50 year old man. I was 28 years old back then. And that is it. Like, we now got to start pouring into people and investing in their spiritual life and start helping them to plant these seeds that are going to set deep roots in their soul and. Just get them firmly planted next to the streams of living water. Help them to get in God's word, teach them how to study God's word, and then you're bringing them along into the church to worship with us, to be fed with us, and to grow with us. Do you have a plan in place to do that? And so, like for me, I'm always thinking, okay, so how can I maximize my efforts? It's not only just meeting with people, but like for me, I'm... it's different because of my background, because I have a radio background. So I record and I record everything. But when I was uh, first saved, um, when I was going to get baptized, I thought it would be just like Satan to make me get sick and lose my voice. So I couldn't get up and give my testimony. So I'm going to record it. So I recorded it way ahead of time, just in case when I showed up at my baptism, if I lost my voice, I got a CD, play it. And about that time, I recorded a message for my funeral. It's like, when I die, nobody's going to be wishy washy. They're going to hear the gospel. So play this at my funeral or don't bury me. Do you and still so, have that recording? I do.
1: Is it going to be played at your
0: funeral? Uh, I think I've updated it since oh, okay. then. But, but it's still the same thing. Like, I don't want you to be soft. I want people to hear the gospel. This is why we're here. It's better to be at a funeral, at a house of mourning, than at a wedding, at a house of feasting. So this is why we're here. And I'm really fortunate that I get to run sound for a lot of funerals just because of the nature of the time of day of most funerals, and I'm available. And I used to think that um, I, I wanted to write a book called 100 Funerals. I wanted to go to 100 Funerals and listen to what they say and say, here's what people say about the most important moment in your life. Probably the second most important moment of your life was when you were born. Certainly the most important moment of your life is when you die and what happens when you die. And here's what you hear at funerals. Here's just the general message. And then here's the gospel. Well, that was in my 20s and I'm over it but but I like funerals because that is really an important moment so anyway so I would record that but then I would just like start um, just recording so I recorded a little CD called how to get to heaven and it was just the gospel recorded on a CD and I made a bunch of copies and I handed it out to everybody. And then the church started giving them out when, on visitations. And they still give it out. The trick now is finding somebody that can still play a CD. Yeah. So, but, I mean, even now. I mean, it's, if you go to. So, it, when I have a conversation with somebody at work and share the gospel. I say, and we're cut short on time. I say, you know what? Go to heaven.jasonyounger.com. And I know that we don't have a lot of time here, but I explain in more depth and more detail how to get to heaven. So heaven.jasonyounger.com. Go go listen to that. Right. So that's just a way that I'm thinking. Okay, how can you just how can I just maximize my efforts here? And in the same way, recording just short little those. So I've taken that same little study that somebody took me through. Twenty two years ago and have reworked it and rewritten it and I've incorporated it into my podcast. I have a podcast. And so the podcast came out of when I was first saved, about the same time we had a baby in our family that had passed away. And before, when she was sick, um, I just started writing letters to my family. So I was a new believer. As a family, we were going through this really big crisis and so I started writing letters to my family every week and just sharing the gospel and the hope that's in Christ. And we would pray, you know, for the baby and things to be praying for in this letter. And so this letter, I started calling them and I would mail them out to everybody in my family. And I called them letters in grace because I was mailing out letters about the grace of God. And then it had a double meaning because it was grace, grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's Riches at Christ's Expense, or God rejects all carnal efforts. And so I've kind of stuck with the God's Riches at Christ's Expense. So yeah, that and so now that the letters have kind of gone away, and it was an email later, and then the email turned into a podcast. So it, so I have lettersandgrace.com. Is it on like, Spotify? Everything, yeah. Yeah, it's on Spotify. Who's
1: your-
0: I don't, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, I, I don't have, I don't have a co-host. But, so that's just using my, my skills, my talents, my background to maximize my efforts to share the gospel. You have your own skills and talents and backgrounds. If your background is accounting, do an, a class on a basic basic finances for your home. Do a free class that you invite people to and incorporate The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn or something like that. And uh, just find what what are my skills, what are my talents, what are my abilities, and how can I incorporate just the, the talents that the Lord has given me to share the gospel, to pull more people in, to live with them, to love them, to disciple them, to feed them the gospel, to walk with them, if you're an employer, employ people with the purpose of sharing the gospel and feeding them and discipling them and walking with them. And so, I mean, I think that kind of as we kind of get towards the end of all of this, keeping in mind what the ultimate goal is, and people will say all kinds of things. They'll say that it, it looks like you're um whatever, I don't know, trying to build a ministry for yourself or something. Like, You know, people are going to say things about you for all kinds of reasons. What matters is, where's your heart? Do you love Christ? Do you love his word? Do you love the gospel? Do you love people? That's what matters. And now, exercise all of your gifts, talents, abilities, and just go to work for the Lord You know, when we bear fruit in our lives, it's not something that we consciously, physically do, right? Um, Let's see, what fruit can I bear this week? No. As you're walking in the Spirit, the natural byproduct of walking in the Spirit is bearing fruit. Like the fruit falls off behind you, and so don't walk looking backwards, looking at the result of your work, so the result of your efforts, just keep your eyes on Christ and just keep walking towards him. And uh, just focus on just, I mean, we got our hands full enough to love people and eliminating sin from your life, right? Guard your personal holiness and love others. I mean, we got our hands full in that. So, um, now when we encounter conversations with people, you're going to encounter all kinds of objections. And so this is uh, lesson five in your book guidelines for handling questions and objections. And I think that the uh, most important thing, which we've talked about a lot is first of all, just remembering the authority of scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen. So in the heat of the moment, you know, you get talking, you want to be right. Um, Sometimes you want them to know that you're right, like you want to win the argument or whatever, or they're just throwing a bunch of stuff at you. They have all kinds of objections, and what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And it's really easy to to go down all these different little rabbit trails and talk about all kinds of secondary matters or even matters that are just so far out there they, they don't matter. And the important thing to remember is that Scripture is our sole infallible authority. And it's only by the power of the word of God that blind minds are enlightened to the truth of the gospel. It's James 1.18, 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25. So the first thing you want to do when they, um, as you're talking through these things and we're kind of working through our four doors and our verses and our bullet points When they ask a question, the first thing you want to do is just evaluate the question. Is this essential to the gospel? Like, are they asking a question that is an essential um, question that is directly related to the gospel? So, if it is, you might need to take the time to stop and, and talk about it a little bit. Keeping in mind, your. that's why we memorize the four doors, and you have your verses. That's to keep you on track. So and as we've said before we want to ask questions, right? We're trying to get them to ask questions. So we want to get them to ask questions, but you're sitting there and you're listening and as you're getting the question you're thinking okay, so how can I fit this in and keep on, keep the conversation on track. Um one of the things that I think you want to sit and kind of evaluate in your mind as this is coming as you're saying um Are they asking me this question because they really want to know the answer? Like if we show them what the Bible says, will they accept that answer? Or is this just a question to derail the conversation? And so if it's to derail the conversation, to say, I I understand. Can we talk about that in a a moment? Or let's come back to that. I want to stay focused on what the, the central issue is. And the central issue is God, whatever, wherever you are and bring it back on, on track. Um, so if it's a distraction, come back to it later and uh, don't blow it off, you know, write it down if you need to or remember it, but try to come back and, and genuinely answer their question. And of course, we don't want to invent an answer if we don't know. Then be honest and say, I don't know, but I know where to find the answer. Can I do a little research? Because I don't want to give you a partial answer. I don't want to give you a wrong answer. I want to give you the truth of God's word. Will you give me the time to dig into it, read and research a little bit, and let's get back together and have lunch, you know, in a couple days. And I'd be glad to, to talk about it. But if you don't know, don't wing it. I've done that before. I'm embarrassed. But I wanted to be right. Wanted to sound like I knew what I was talking about. Okay. So, here's some suggested answers for common questions. Uh, First is, how can I be certain of my salvation? And, of course, we, we can't really give somebody that assurance right who gives us the assurance of salvation my co-host on my podcast <laughs> the holy spirit right we cannot sure assure a person of his salvation so don't speak as if salvation is just simply the result of praying a prayer or performing some kind of external action You know, like you've heard the churches raise the hand, walk the aisle, sign the card, burn the pine cone at camp or whatever. Um, So somebody might express his desires to God in prayer, but salvation is based on repentant faith. And we can't know a person's heart and we must not usurp the Holy Spirit's function and give false assurance on the basis of a verbal commitment. So that's tough, right? Because on one hand, you want to be encouraging. You want to be reassuring. But at the same time, you want to be careful not to give false hope or false assurance. And so you have to speak with love in that. And so it's not just a quick, cold, reply. How do I know if I'm saved? Remember the clip that we listened to last week with John MacArthur and the lady, and he just so lovingly walked her through. Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you this? Because the fact that you're sitting here and even asking me these questions, these are good questions to ask. And the unbeliever doesn't struggle with these things. And the unbeliever doesn't think these things. And that by itself is a good indication that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and working in your life. And this is really just an evidence. This is a fruit. So um, so we want, to be, we want to be careful. We want to be loving. We want to be kind. And it's like, you know what? It's not, it's not. Like the answer is, Time will tell. And the answer is, we will see. But that's, that's an internal commentary that you should be having with yourself, not an external commentary. What you say is, you know what? How do we know that we're saved? What do you believe? What do you believe? Right? We're not sitting there and we're not trying to give them all of the machinations of the workings of God behind the scenes and how's that all work? The question right now is, you, as a person, from me to you, what do you believe? Do you believe, well, 1 John 5, 11 and 12, he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son does not have life. John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe does not have life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Do you Believe in Christ? Yes. And when I say, do you believe in Christ, what does that mean? What is it about Christ that you believe? Do you believe that Christ is God? Yes. Do you believe that He lived a sinless life? Yes. Do you believe that He died on the cross and bore all of your sins on the cross? Yes. And do you believe that He died and rose from the dead and is coming in? Yes then you believe in Christ. Will?
1: So in that um, situation where you're asking the person, do you think it might be more advantageous to ask them, what do you believe, and have them tell you that way? Because I've had it right. before, like where you're telling them the things, they're just saying yes. Exactly. It's just like, okay, right. what, is it better in that situation, I would think, to ask them, like, tell me what you believe. Like, I want to hear it. Absol- you, absolutely. Absolutely. you know, mm-hmm. not wait for me to say something and you're like, sure, I'll believe that. Absolutely. So, and you say, according to what your example, you just gave, what do you, what was you?
0: Yeah. If you can, if you can pull that out of them, that's excellent. It's anybody can follow along and say, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe. But if you truly believe that, then you are, the Bible says that you're saved. And how will that evidence itself in your life? because, jesus said you will know them by their fruit and what is this fruit that we will bear so these things will play out in your life so as we walk with christ we'll keep studying we'll keep learning more about him and you'll start to find this deep-seated peace and joy and hope you'll find yourself struggling To overcome sin, the fact that you even care about overcoming sin, those are all really good signs. That's good fruit that you're bearing because if you were spiritually dead, you don't care about those things. So that right there is great assurance, but it comes down to what do you believe? What do you believe? So don't give a false assurance just based on something they did or a one-time commitment but love them and encourage them and disciple them encourage them to keep going to continue in the faith to keep learning to grow to bear fruit here's the test is when the storms of life start to hit now as a new believer and this is all hit you now Now, what are you going to do when your family rejects you or they kick you out because of what you believe? Or they won't talk to you anymore or you lose all your friends. Nobody wants to be around you anymore. Will you forsake Christ to go back to your family, to go back to your friends? Or will you be like Peter and say, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I can't even think of doing anything else but cling to you. I mean, where else will I go? Go back to where I came from? I mean, I see what the end of that is. That's a great encouragement. And they will be dealing with those trials and those hardships. Love them through that and lead them through that and hold their hand. You're their family now. When their family rejects them, when their family despises them or kicks them out, or wants nothing to do with them, or they're abusive, verbally abusive to them because of this, whatever it is. You are their family now. We are their family now. And we need to love them and care for them and show them the love of Christ. So, on one hand, it's they become part of our stewardship. So God gives us the gospel, and it's a stewardship. And then God gives us fruit. Like the gospel, it it becomes a ministry. Like this stewardship of the gospel becomes our own ministry, our own personal ministry in taking the gospel to the world. And then God starts to give us fruit. And as people are responding, you can't let people fall through the cracks. Have a plan, have a system to follow up with people. Keep good notes on what the issues are, what the struggles are, what the prayer requests are, and come back and ask them, how's this going? Uh, How's this going with your kids? I've I've really been thinking about you and praying for you. It's terrible. (laughs) Let's get together and meet. Let's get together and meet because I know the one who is the Prince of Peace. The one that you want to be anchored to in the storms of life is the rock. And we have a song that we sing at church, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's really true. Let's get together. Let's go have lunch and let's uh, let's talk about it. We need to get back in our Bible study. I'm, I'm sorry I've let that fall through. Right? And so you'll have somebody else and something is going on. So as your ministry starts bearing fruit, these people that God has given you, they're a responsibility of yours to disciple now and to teach and to feed them and to bring them into the church so that they can be fed and worship with us. So you're kind of, it's like training wheels again. You're holding their hand until those training wheels come off and they can stand on their own. You're feeding them like a baby, spiritual milk, until they can stand on their own and feed themselves. So they're not going to know how to read the Bible. They're not going to know how to study the Bible. If you grew up in a Christian home and you've known how to read and study the Bible your whole life, most people have never even seen the Bible. What do you mean? I mean, you guys are quoting... Books and chapters and verses—that is a foreign language to me. What are you talking about? New Testament, Old Testament—I don't know what any of this is. Those are new babes in Christ, and you have to feed them until they can feed themselves. So don't just give them some false assurance, pat them on the back, and send them on their way. First Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature." Because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs 16: two, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And that's what we're encouraging them to do is look at the heart, look at their own heart, examine their own heart. Jesus in the parable of the soils, illustrated that we cannot know the condition of a person's heart by his initial response. But only by the fruit of his life, Mark chapter four, verses one through 20. We can assure a person that if he repents, Christ will not turn him away. Which door is that? That's our Christ door. He is faithful and true, and his call is genuine, and all of those that the Father gives him. He will not cast out. He will not lose one. So in Scripture, God has given a clear and undeniable proof of salvation. A new believer must learn to look to these truths for assurance. And if he fails to do this, he will continue to look back to an event, to a moment, or action as verification of his salvation, and probably justification of continued sin. It's like, yeah, I'm doing this, but you know, it's who I am. It's what, Hey, what am I going to do? That's who I am. It's what I do. I'm just glad that God saved me back in 1997 when I said the prayer and right. And so, yeah, I'm not perfect, but then who is, you know, I'm just glad I'm forgiven. Like, so they're looking to that one event, right? So we're encouraging people to look to these truths for assurance, not to an event, not to a certain time that they made a commitment. Um, the test of salvation comes from examining three facets of the repentant life. First is faith that obeys Christ and flees from sin. Believers will have a continued and sustained faith in the promises of God. 1 John three twenty three. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, an example is endurance through trials. 1 Corinthians 10.13, a true believer will begin to develop patterns of obedience as his relationship with Christ is cultivated and nurtured by consistent feeding on his word. John 14.15, John 14.23, 1 John 5.3, John two three and 5. Okay, so three evidences. The first one is a faith that produces obedience. Second is the presence of the fruit of the Spirit, which we mentioned. As a believer grows in Christ-likeness and applies the Scriptures to his life, the Holy Spirit will produce within him fruit in keeping with repentance. And they might just be baby steps at first. They might be hindered and slowed by sin. But sanctification, being made like Christ, will never stall out completely. Philippians 1.6, Philippians 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, and 24. So the believer will start to see a change in his attitudes and actions as he grows in Christ's likeness. In Matthew 7.17, this is illustrated with the good tree that will bear good fruit. And any experience that does not result in the production of fruit is not salvation. So we don't produce artificial fruit We can't produce salvation, Titus 3, 5 through 7. So we can't have this false plastic defective fruit. So if a person is saved, fruit will be present. And we will see it. Now, we might have to give them assurance of the fruit. Because like if you're walking, if you're saved and you're walking and you're looking at Christ and you don't, like I said, the fruit is falling off behind you. So you might have to say, you know, here's what I see in your life. I know this. You don't deny Christ. You're quick to confess sin. You're quick to make amends with people when you do wrong. Those are all really good evidences of, of faith in Christ. That, that's fruit. These are good signs. Keep that up. Encourage them. So people might not always see their own fruit. Um, But that's where that discipleship relationship comes from. Okay, so faith obeys. Second, true faith bears fruit. And third, the Holy Spirit is in the believer's life. Romans 8, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within the body of every believer and is actively involved in sanctification. By his very presence, he comforts, he convicts of sin, and he testifies that we are the children of God. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Okay. So another objection that you might get, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And I always hear, this one always makes me laugh because it's just so short-sighted because what is the uh how do how have you heard people say that what are different ways you've heard people say what about those who have never heard the gospel because they always about the tribes in africa. exactly what about the have any what about the poor tribes in africa it's like why does everybody pick on the tribes in africa all the time yeah. there are people all over the world that haven't heard the gospel mm-hmm. why are you picking on africa there's people in my neighborhood that haven't heard the gospel there's people everywhere that haven't heard the gospel. But guess what? There's also people everywhere that have heard the gospel. Right? Like God is everywhere and the gospel is going out everywhere and everyone is guilty of breaking God's law. Romans 3:23. The penalty of sin doesn't change because of ignorance. We see as Romans says, God's law written on our hearts, right? Everyone is equally responsible before God. So it's not only that you let God down, you sin against God, you don't even live up to your own standards. So even if you say that I'm an atheist and I don't believe in God, you don't even live up to your own standards. And we'll talk about this here in a little bit, but you know, even the idea that there is a good and bad, right? There is only one way to be saved, and that is through Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, period. Everybody's rejected the knowledge of God, which is made clear in creation and in the conscience. And if the Holy Spirit begins working in the heart, God will sovereignly bring the gospel to them. The question is, will we repent of our sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or will we continue to live in rebellion and disobedience? Like, you can make this about other people as much as you want, but don't worry. God's got it. He knows them. And he makes himself known around the world. So there's people everywhere that don't know him. There's people all over the world that do know him. The gospel is in all kinds of places you think it wouldn't be. That's something that I've learned in the last few years. Another one that you might get, so why does evil exist? Now this starts really getting me excited because I love this conversation. Why does evil exist? If God is so good and powerful, why can't he stop evil? It's really good. And so I will often say, that's a great question. He could. Why didn't God just create everything perfect and then leave it? Could God have created, so we're back at the God door. You're pulling out of people. What do you believe about God? Could God have created everything perfect and sin never enters in? Could he do that? Well, apparently not. Because he didn't, he created everything good and sin entered in. No, God absolutely could have. So the question isn't could he, the question is why did he allow sin? And then that launches into my three hour long, overly excited and hopefully uncaffeinated version of Ephesians 2.7. I love Ephesians 2, 7 so much. And Ephesians 2, 7 leads into Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is so good. So on philosophical grounds, the problem of evil objection is actually more of a problem for the unbeliever than it is for the believer. For the unbeliever to admit that there is such a thing as objective evil and not just that certain things are just wrong for you, but not for me. They must also admit that there is such a thing as objective good. And if good and evil really exist, there must be a moral law. And where does that come from? And there's a conscience. And where does that come from? And that means there's this moral lawgiver. And where does that come from? That moral lawgiver. The one who gives us this conscience that is the god of the bible if somebody denies that god exists there is no basis for absolute morality without absolute morality the unbeliever has no basis to say that evil exists evil becomes merely what a particular person feels is subjectively unpleasant So it becomes clear that the atheistic worldview cannot even admit that such a thing as evil exists, let alone offer a solution to its problem. However, when we admit that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, then we may define evil as the transgression of his law. And that's the point we want to talk about sin. Man's problem, every incident of sickness, disease, crime, war are the result of sin. And sin is present in the world because man chose to reject God's commands. Genesis 3, Romans 3, 10, Romans 5, 12. And evil exists as a result of man's rebellion against God's law. And God has the ability to eliminate evil. And God restrains evil, but to do so would require that he destroys Every single person. If he eliminated evil, guess what, buddy? You and I wouldn't be here. (laughs) Because we are evil. We're sinful. So you don't want what's fair. You don't want God's justice. Like it's always somebody else. And you wouldn't believe, even in a maximum security prison, where you would think, I mean, the crime that you've been convicted of, found guilty of, that, but even you say, no, that was a mistake. That guy over there, he's evil, right? And it's just, it's never me. It, there's always somebody that's more evil, always somebody that they deserve the wrath of God, not me. I made a, I made a mistake. I fall short, but I'm not evil. So the Bible says that evil cannot exist in the presence of God. Psalm 5, 4 and 5. Eternal death awaits everyone who does evil, Romans six twenty three. And man has to be reconciled to God in order to be forgiven and set free from the penalty of sin. And that is God's own answer to the problem of evil. He overcame evil by the sacrifice of his innocent son to deliver sinners from the evil to which they were enslaved. The unbeliever has no solution to the problem of evil. Now, this gets so good if you just camp out. This is why it's important to just read and build depth behind those four doors because you can just say, God has a plan. And who are we to say what God is doing? But we know that all things work together. For good, for those who love him, and or the God of the universe who created and owns everything. He's perfectly holy, and he demands perfect holiness. Of course, could have created all things perfectly, and he did, and he allows sin to come in. And why is that? I mean, what a story that unfolds that God's creation, a third of the angels, fall from heaven in rebellion against him. And now mankind turns on him. And so all of his creation is under sin's curse. And all of his creation is turning rebellion against him. And so you have a third of the angels rebelling. You have mankind rebelling against him. And he's telling this story that throughout all of the Bible and throughout all of eternity, no matter who comes against him, That he is still sovereign and victorious. And even in all of this evil, he glorifies himself. And all of God's attributes come focused into, right there, a moment on the cross. And the cross is just the central point of all eternity. Because right there at the cross, all of his attributes become known. And so, is God holy? The cross says yes. Is God just? The cross says yes. And is he merciful? Of course the cross says yes. And is he gracious? Yes. And is he long-suffering? Yes. Does God save some? He calls them out and he saves some to be worshipers. And there's others who reject him. And they reject him willingly. And they hate him. And they want nothing to do with him. And they pay sin's penalty, eternity in hell. Is that good? Even the sinner in hell, because it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And even the sinners in hell will say, you know what? He is good. He is true. I was a fool to reject him. So whether in heaven or whether in hell, everybody, all of his creation, no matter what it is, even if all the powers of all of heaven and earth come against him, he is still by far the sovereign one. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, right? So we get into revelation and we just start looking at just this eternal story and forever and ever and ever, we will not say, they say he is patient and kind. And he, he says that he is loving and merciful Instead, for all eternity, we'll say, no, I know He's holy. I know He's just. I know He's merciful. I know He's patient and kind. We saw it. Like, I lived it. He was merciful to me. When I was dead in my transgressions and my sins, He was good to me. So, it's just this exciting story that unfolds. It's not a problem for us, but for the unbeliever, the problem of evil is a problem. So I don't think that's a rabbit trail. You can take that and that works through all four doors. It talks about God and who he is. It talks about Christ and our sin problem. It talks about uh, man and our sin problem. It talks about Christ and what he did. And in light of that, what are we to do? We are to come back under the authority of God who created us and who has been so patient with us this is one I get all the time well you believe what you want and I believe what I want in the end everybody will be saved so it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you have faith right right yeah yeah like we were saying yeah I'm spiritual right you believe what you want I believe what I want you know as long as you have faith in the end you'll be saved well Faith is only as good as its object. And believing something sincerely doesn't make it right. And say, it doesn't matter what you believe. And it doesn't matter what I believe. What matters is, what does the Bible say?
1: When I said that, like, brought that up, like, but in the Bible it says, like Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and I don't no one your Father but to me. That's what the Bible says. That's true. So the only true faith. Yes, in Christ, and so people's arguments that is you're basing your belief out of the Bible. So yes, I am. Then they—that's what they—they. They, it's really circular reasoning <laughs> on both of our sides, kind of. I'm like, I can't really explain it after that. But it's like, okay, so this is what the Bible says about faith. They're so saying you're
0: presupposing that the Bible is true. Yeah, they're like, well. Yes, so I am.
1: I don't believe the. What if I don't believe the Bible's true? And I believe other is true. And I'm like, yep. well. Uh, all I can say is that's what the Bible says. That's not... yeah.
0: how, do you, how do you know that the Bible is true? I've read it. I've lived it. Like it has proven itself to me over and over again that God, what God says is true. And when you read it and you look at what it says and you look at the world, like it's, it's there, it's right. It, it explains everything. It makes sense. It wasn't a room of guys that got together. You can't get these people to come together. And so it's really good to know, how did we get our Bible? And how do we know that the Bible's true? Equip yourselves and be prepared for that answer. Because it is true. So it's not just faith. And it's not just sincerity. We have to have this ultimate authority, and it can't be man. Man. And so really our goal is, I'm telling you that I, I can stand here and I can tell you one thing. And you can go to a, another religion down the street and they can tell you another thing. You can get three, four, five different things. And we can all tell you things that make sense. We can all tell you things that sound good or feel good. But that doesn't matter. What matters is, what did God say? And how do we know? What God says, how does God reveal himself to us? How does he reveal truth to us? God has made himself known three ways through what has been made, just through general revelation, through his son, who is the fullness of God in bodily form and through his word. And that's it. That's it. It's not a sign. It's not a feeling. It's nothing new agey. It's nothing spiritual. It's God's word. And if you will get in it and you will read it, it will prove itself to you. Take the lion off the chain, get them in God's word and let the word and the Holy spirit do the work. Cause we're not going to argue them into submission. We're not going to argue them to be saved. Our goal is to get them in the word of God and to read it and to believe it. S Lewis writes this as in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all others are wrong. In the same way, there is only one solution for man's dilemma. There's one answer, John 14, 6, Galatians 2, 16, Titus 3, 5. There is only one name by which we are saved, Acts 4, 12. So all other religions are human accomplishment, human achievement. That's what's special about Christianity. It was divine it Achievement, divine accomplishment. All right, moving along quickly. Uh, God will accept me because I'm a good person. God knows my heart, and I've done a lot of good things. That's a pretty common answer. Have you ever been pulled over for doing good, though? Like when you do good, you just do what you should do. Like there's no cookie for doing good. When you do good, you've only done what you should do. A person only needs to steal once to be a thief. How many times, how many people do you have to kill to be a murderer? One. Like just the smallest sin condemns man eternally. So that goes back to God and his holy nature. The Bible says that every good deed is worthless before a holy God or Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, or Titus 3, 5. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. So since everyone has sinned and fallen short of glory, God, fallen short of God's glory, No one will be saved by his good works or well-meaning intentions, Romans 3.23. Another one of my favorites. Isn't the Bible full of errors? I mean, how do we know that over time it hasn't been distorted? Like it's been copied and copied and passed down for so long that by now, who knows that it even says what it originally said. And I say, that's a great question. Because all that matters is what did it originally say? Because that's the truth. Like, it's not, um, there's nothing magic in the binding of the book. It's not the special Bible paper they always use. It's not the ink. It's not the, the, anything magical in the syllables and the sounds that it makes as you read it. What makes the Word of God the Word of God? It's meaning. And so, how do we know that the meaning is what the authors wrote? Well, let me ask you this. How do we know that what Shakespeare wrote is true? Like, how do we know what, when we read Shakespeare, how do we know that that hasn't been twisted and changed as it's been translated to other languages and, handed down, and recopied. How do we know? Well, we have the original. They might know that we have the original, they might not. Probably assume that we have Shakespeare, because people think, yeah, Shakespeare wasn't that long ago. There are 235 first folios of Shakespeare's work that still exist. 235. 1623 A.D., and there's 235, and nobody questions Shakespeare. The Bible has thousands of manuscripts that exist. Thousands of these early, original manuscripts exist. So, 400 years versus thousands of years. Hundreds of copies versus thousands of copies. And they all point to the same thing. It's true. It hasn't changed. God has superintended it. You guys kind of know what the big deal about uh, Bitcoin is with the blockchain. Do you pay any attention to that? So kind of the big thing with the reason why people like it is because it can't be manipulated in that. It's all on this open ledger. So the blockchain is thousands and thousands of computers. When a transaction happened, it's recorded everywhere. And so you can't manipulate or make a mistake on one computer and distort the ledger because it's everywhere everywhere. Like, there are so many copies of the same ledger everywhere. And when the ledger updates, it updates everywhere. It's like open source. And that's kind of what God did with his word. Like, it is everywhere. And there are so many copies everywhere that even if there was a a mistake in miscopying, and something was misspelled or a word was dropped or something was left, there are so many copies. We have thousands of copies that we can look back and it just error corrects itself. We know what the scripture said. That's really important for us to know. It's important for us to know how we got the Bible, where it came from, what it claims to be, and why it's dependable. So, that's good. I don't believe that God exists Uh, have you looked up? Have you looked down? Right? Telescope or microscope? I love microscope because I love microbiology. So, but if you like to talk astronomy, we can talk astronomy too. I love them. Like, I just love the glory of God everywhere. Okay. Creation though, right? We cannot really know what happens when we die. Are you afraid of death? Right? Have a good conversation about death. Death. And what do you think happens? There's only two options, heaven and hell. And finally, Christians are hypocrites. Duh. Forgiveness is simply an excuse for sin. And there are many who claim to be Christians who are not, right? And and you tell them the same thing that you tell the new believer. How can you tell if a person is a true Christian? By their fruit. By their fruit. Do they obey Christ? There's a lot of people that call themselves Christian. Here's how you know. I'll give you a little inside track. Here's how you know if someone's a a real Christian. They'll obey Christ. They'll bear good fruit. And here's what that looks like. And that's what we're all called to do. And so, there you go. Now you know what we know. Here's how we spot false Christians too. Obedience. 1 John 5.3, John 14.15, God is our standard of perfection, not the Christian. Christ is the image, not the Christian. We are sinners in need of God's grace every day. And I'm sorry that you see us out there failing. We don't want to, but we are in the same boat. We need Christ and we need his victory over sin. We need his righteousness. We need his atonement and we need the Holy Spirit to be making us more like him so that we're not out here being a bunch of hypocrites, and acting like idiots at the checkout, giving the, you know, cashier a hard time, and the things that we do when we have bad days, you know, so, a few objections, any thoughts?